This episode is brought to you by the Big Ears Festival, taking place from March 21st through 24th, 2024 in Knoxville, and featuring an incredible range of performers, from Herbie Hancock to Lori Anderson to Kurt Vile. BigEarsFestival.org. This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. This is not, this is, it's very far away from, from uh, I have a song I'm going to play for you, right? And it's more in, you know, I'm going to let a vision cohere, right, uh, on tape, right? Which is a moment in time, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and I think, you know, coming to understand that, that there are different ways of, of doing that over the long course of listening, uh, really, really helps me think about music in bigger ways, which I think is the end stage goal of listening to music, right? It's like always broadening the way that you listen. I think, you know, uh, I think it's a task. We all know people on Facebook who fail this task who go, well, music was great when I was in high school, but you always want to be, not be that guy, right? You want to say like, no, there's bigger ways of listening. There's bigger ways of relating, right? This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. the seventh shield still wet on my skin you're all crumpled up at the curb there I think I'm gonna take you in always had to follow my instincts John Darnielle is an icon in the American underground music community, both as leader of the Mountain Goats, where he was an early purveyor of lo-fi folk starting with the band's cassette-only releases in the early 1990s, as well as an author and polymath with a number of interests about which he is deeply passionate. These include death metal, professional wrestling, and even Magic the Gathering, and reflect Arneal's voracious intellect. The Mountain Goat's 22nd studio album, Jenny from Thebes, was released by Merge Records on October 27th, 2023. As the oracle predicted, the first song Darneal chose as being formative for him was Can Kill by Stockholm Monsters.
smile And then the spell was cast And here we are in heaven For you are So Stockholm Monsters are uh, from the uh, sort of the first wave of bands after Factory Records gets money. And to explain this, uh, I have to make sure everybody knows that Factory Records was the label um, started by Martin Hannett to release, uh, well, to do a lot of things, but that wind, wind, winds up being known for its Joy Division records, right? So it's Joy Division's label. Uh, with All the sleeves are by Peter Saville, whose, uh, whose graphic sensibility was, you know, quite distinctive and which quickly comes to define factory factory also assigned a product number to everything they did right to their posters to their albums to their albums to their to some events right and like i think their in-house tea kettle got a factory number so factory is a very distinctly aesthetic uh 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 well it, it was a label with a very distinct aesthetics right um uh but also sonically so Peter Hook in uh, in in New Order has 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 got this bass tone that's just, I think just putting your bass through a chorus pedal probably a boss I'm not sure but it's a very distinctive bass tone I think also the bassist from The Cure uses something like it but uh, but it's this very distinct sound that uh, and he's very he's becoming a very good bassist so he's guesting on a lot of the other factory records that are being made right uh, all the members in New Order at at that point are, are they're helping produce if it says it's produced by B Music I'm, I think that that was either Sumner or Hook right who who was doing that stuff and there's a band called the Stockholm Monsters who were probably some friends of these guys from school. They were from some outlying Manchester suburb. I used to know which one it was, but it's, it's one of the, the neighborhoods around Manchester, right? And, uh, and everybody in that scene is sort of like starting bands and doing stuff, right? They had made a few 7 inches um, and 12 inches, and then they made a record called Alma Mater, which is one of my 10 favorite albums of all time. Uh, I don't really have a working 10 list, but it's always on it uh, when I get asked to make one. Um, it, you can hear Peter Hook's sensibility all over it. But the singer uh, is doing this really um, lonely thing. It's very introspective. It's very... Uh, he's voicing a character who second-guesses all of his moves and always feels like he said the wrong thing. It's a weird way to make rock and roll. Maybe not anymore. <laughs> There's a lot of that now, right? In the 80s, to, for your front man to have lyrics like, you know... Um, uh, Oh, what's, what's a good Stockholm Monsters? Um, uh, everything I do just comes out wrong. <laughs> it's a very interesting rock and roll lyric, right? Um, uh, and, and so, but their album is not successful. Uh, nobody cares about it except for factory, you know, people who are obsessed with labels, people who are obsessed with what's going on in England, like me on the West Coast, right? Um, and it was a very important album to me and the girl I was with uh, dating in high school. So then I moved to Portland in 85. And sometime in 86, 
I find a 12 inch that's got a very strange cover. It's yellow and gray with a question mark on it. And the A side is called How Corrupt is Rough Trade. And the B side is called Can Kill. Right? And it's by the Stockholm Monsters. Like, oh, this is a band I love. It was so much harder to get information in those days. Right? But like, I didn't even know all the stuff they had out. I just knew the album and a 7 inch. But I found this one. And this happened to come to me during a time when I was uh, taking a lot of drugs and drinking a lot and blacking out, right? I was 19, but I would like, I had a, a moment where I had three days lost time. I'll never know what happened during those days. I, I took a bunch of really hard drugs and, and I came to at some point and my brain was, wasn't functional. It was, I couldn't remember things from one minute to the next. I kept calling my girlfriend who lived down in Southern Oregon to ask her what day it was, you know? Uh, and, uh, and this record was there at that time and I was listening to it. Right. And it's dubby. The B-side is dubby. I didn't know anything about dub reggae, really. I thought I didn't like reggae. But you listen to it now, it's got this, it's Peter Hook playing around with dub, right? Doing these, you know, a few notes that stand in where somebody normal would, would just be playing for the floor bass. You know, dom, dom. It's a lot of echoey, strange sound samples and stuff. And, um, and, and this guy voicing these lyrics of, of being unsure about how to live his life. Right? <laughs> you know, it was very strange and very long. The song takes a long time to come together, right? It felt like the inside of my brain at that time, you know, uh, taking a full minute for things to really cohere into a song, you know, and then the guitar comes in, but you don't feel like you were waiting for that. You feel like it was just this, this thing that isn't trying to be a song that when the needle drops, everybody gets excited or whatever. It's, it's, it's this, this dispatch from a different way of thinking about what music is for and what music can do. And it is quite danceable once it, once it hits its, it hits its zone, but it's, 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 it's more, it was more about a, a, a mind space, hugely important record for me in, in that moment. I, I listened to it over and over and over again, just trying to keep track of which side was which, because they don't say how corrupt is rough trade in the A side. And they don't say can kill in the B side. They say, Oh no, take it back. I just want to see you smile. Oh no, take it back. I just want to compromise. Again, a very weird chorus, right? I mean, even, even for new wave stuff, which specializes in like, well, we're not doing normal rock and roll lyrics. That's so sort of checked out, you know, it's, it's very, uh, they reportedly, I guess, were frustrated that they didn't get more successful and they, pa and they, they packed it in inside of another year or two. Uh, but immensely, and, and, and the thing is, Hook's productions at this point, he's still just learning how to, how to produce, but he's really talented and good, right? And he's really making uh, incredible sounding stuff. Uh, I have to text the next room to see if we can keep it down a little bit in there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's doing these incredible things uh, uh, with sound that he's, I think he's learning how to use the board, you know, and you can hear it. He's saying, well, what if I made this echo a lot longer? What if I, you know, what if I brought in a little bit of Nat King Cole, you know, and so forth. So were you already playing music at this point or were you still... no not really um uh i was in a band with a friend uh uh who but we like we played a few shows but there wasn't really it was part of my private my personal life not not outward facing life that much like we played shows they would almost only be for people who already knew us you know um th this so this record was not informing me musically at the time right but when I listen to it now and think about the massive effect that it had on me, I think it's because of the way it's recorded, right? It's because of the way that whoever's sitting in the engineer's chair is, is doing this trust exercise. I'm saying, well, you, you go play your part on this song that you've written, and you go play yours, and you go play yours. We'll get it all together, and then I'll put it together, 
right? Now, this is a way I resisted working for a very long time, right? Uh, and I still, you know, like on Goths, all the uh, album of ours called Goths, all of the al vocals are through, through recorded. You're actually hearing a live vocal in almost every instance. I didn't punch in, I didn't comp, right? But usually most vocals that you hear on anything these days are, you know, if somebody says, I'm going downtown, all four of those syllables can come from four different takes, right? They, that's, that's how things are usually done now. Um, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> some of the, some of the, uh, to remain unnamed, how we do it in a small town type guys are using very big town techniques to make those records. <laughs> and so, uh, but, but this, this record is, is one that is audibly a studio creation, right? This is not, this is, it's very far away from, from, uh, I have a song I'm going to play for you. Right. And it's more in, you know, I'm going to let a vision cohere, right, uh, on tape, right, which is a moment in time, right, uh, and, uh, and, and I think, you know, coming to understand that, that there are different ways of, of doing that over the long course of listening uh, really, really helps me think about music in bigger ways, which I think is the end stage goal of listening to music, right, is like always broadening the way that you listen. I think, you know, uh, I think it's a task we all know people on Facebook who fail this task who go, well, music was great when I was in high school, but you always want to be, not be that guy, right? You want to say like, no, there's bigger ways of listening. There's bigger ways of relating, right? And this is a very bigger way of relating sort of song because it combines because it combines this very personal introspective sounding lyric with these big sonic vistas that are all, you know, there are some normal, just major chords in it, but there's also this strange reaching extensions that don't seem to have a mood that you can define maybe you could use wistful to define it you know but there's it's wistful it's suspicious it's lonesome it's a bunch of things that we don't normally foreground in music and that is what influences me musically because what I've always been trying to do is find mindsets or narrative stances or whatever that are apart from the ones that you would normally expect in the kind of music you're hearing from me right it's interesting that you, I mean, you know you name checked uh, Martin Hannett earlier, who you know produced yeah. a bunch of those Factory records and was a big part yeah. of Factory. Um, you know, and he was famously experimental in the studio, but he was also famously dictatorial. And I think that that idea that you're talking about of of sort of trying things, but also sort of trying things and just sort of seeing what happens and not being like, I want to do it this way. It's like let's try this and maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. I mean, I don't know. Uh, people talk so much about studio time and maybe home recording allows for a lot more experimentation these days. Um, so this is a super good line of inquiry uh, because, you know, the person saying let's try this is normally the producer more than the band in my band anyway. Part of this is because it's taken me 20, 30 years to get much more open-minded. You come in... You know, if you feel like the, 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 the reputation of the record is eventually going to rest with you no matter what happens, you really feel protective. When somebody says they want to try something, you go, well, why? What's it going to sound like? And one thing I'm always right about is, like, when they say, well, let's try this. If you don't like it, you can take it off. Once they put something on, now you're going to have to argue to make them take it off, right? Or, or be an asshole to everybody. Right? <laughs> now you have to go and say, no, I told you I wasn't going to like it, and I don't, right? You, you get into these discussions you don't want to be having. They harsh the vibe, right? So, but... Uh, but often it's the producer end going, you know, let me just uh, let me just do some stuff and see if it sounds good to you. And then it's the musician's job to say, you know, that this notion that a musician heard a sound in his head and and 
and now he's going to make it real. That's a myth for the most part. There's one or two people with ears like that, you know, but not so many. And, and most of those myths turn out to be complete and utter for the press things. You know, like Captain Beefheart did not tell everybody how to play their instruments on... Um, on Trout Mascopica, those were musicians who, like, who had ideas about how to play their instruments. And if he did, they probably went, oh, yeah, Cap, we got this here. This is what you mean, right? And then and then did what they thought would sound good, you know? And, uh, and uh, you know, but learning how to back away and let people be their, their own voice is a part of your job if you're in the captain's chair, right? Um, I think the production on a lot of these factory records is very much, you guys play your thing, now you go to the pub, I'll meet up with you a couple hours later. And then the producer would just start going to town on his end of things. Um, we had uh, a conversation with uh, John Vanderslice, who I think you know. Yes, and, um, dear friend, yeah. Yeah, and it has not run as an episode yet. But he said something that was one of the more memorable things anyone has ever said uh, as a guest on the show. In fact, I think I've already talked about it um, with another <laughs> that's, guest. I, that's really cool, though. That's it. Um, but he he said, and he's a as in addition to being a songwriter and performer, and pro, uh, he's also a producer. Um, yes, and of he well, he's produced records of mine. So yeah, yeah, uh, and he uh, said something, and I'm gonna paraphrase, but this is pretty close. Is like you cannot possibly underestimate the the small c conservatism of you know almost all bands. In terms of, <laughs> of trying things or like you know experimenting, and I thought it's true. You have to learn it. And the thing is, like, I suspect that there's people in my band who'd be like, "No, John's the conservative guy," but everybody's conservative on their own, on their own watch out. You know, for the, if you say to somebody whose instrument is, well, I won't name any instruments, but if you say, "Hey, I would like you to play this instrument differently or through a different pedal or amp," they'll go, "Oh, I'm, I know my instrument pretty well, and this is the way it sounds good. I'll do it if you want me to." You know. But uh, but I think everybody actually sort of guards their own spot and has to be coaxed into saying, we're all doing something in the service of this other thing, right? But everybody is usually willing to learn. I think everybody in my crew is like, you have to, you find your you find your space between defending what you see as your voice, you know, and wanting that voice to be to sort of have as many as many languages available to it as you can find and learn to speak, right? And so. Uh, so yeah, no, it's but but you're right. I think bands, especially as a unit, start to go. We know what we do, right? You don't. You're not in this band. Right? Your job is to document us. And there's people who think of it that way, and that's fine, you know. But I think for me, working with engineers, you know, has learned that like when you're able to grow open to hearing other notions of what you're doing, then you grow as a musician, right? I don't, I don't believe in forming a sound and this is the sound I make. Right? I believe in letting that sound grow and seeing where it goes. Um, to some point, and I wasn't always like this. I used to be an absolute fascist about it. So. Um, one more thing I want to sort of raise about this, um, in particular, the, the 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 stuff you said about this at the outset. Did you read? Uh, I think it was John Savage's uh, oral history of uh, Joy Division. No, there's, uh, and I'm not going to remember who said it, but there was a, a quote at the end of one of the chapters there that really jumped out at me at the time and and something you said uh um uh, brought it up and seems like maybe you know in light of your music and your work and and this conversation it fits which is they were sort of making a case for joy division as a hinge point and uh, since this is going on the radio i'm going to paraphrase this too he said you know punk was f you and um when joy division came along you know, their lyrical stance was more F me, 
you know? <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that that, you know, when I read that, I was like, yeah, right. That was very different, you know? Um, and um, I think that what you're talking about there with this song, um, you know, connects with that a lot. It's, it's a very different stance in that sort of oppositional, you know, sneering thing that a lot of most punk music had. Yeah, I mean, the chief difference is, I think, that, that Joy Division, you know, Ian Curtis is a poet. He's writing poetry, you know, uh, and, and there's a sense of him as a very charismatic front man, right? Even though, you know, uh, because of his epilepsy and a number of other things, he, he's a very, you know, very different front man. But in the case of Tony France, on this record and throughout the catalog, you really do get the feeling that, you know, they were friends, so they had to have a band, you know, because you have a band sometimes when you're friends, and and somebody had to be the singer. They weren't trying to be can, you know, so they so they they pick somebody out for that, and then they have to some lyrics, but but it all seems to come from a place of of not, you know, most lyricists are trying in some way to share a vision and impart it to the listener, or even force it on the listeners, like you know, to make you feel. There's a Dylan line to make you feel my love, right? And so, but. In the case of the Stockholm Monsters, you know, like to make a record is an outward facing thing. But then one of the few bands and one of my other bands I did I didn't name <laughs> Sold American, one of my favorite bands of all time. If you told me that they that they there were the few bands I would believe if they said, Yeah, we're not making this we we're not thinking at all about what people are gonna think when they hear it. Oh, I believe that, right? Uh, and I believe it from the Stockholm Monsters, you know. Uh, but most bands, I say, nah, you, you're thinking of a listener. You have an imaginary listener in mind. You know, you have, even if you don't intend to share it, you have, you have an imagined audience, right? But in the case of the Stockholm Monsters, you feel like only the producer has that, you know? And the band is sort of making something that almost exists in an entirely introverted space, you know? Um, and for me, coming from a place of poetry, I wrote poetry before I wrote songs, that's really interesting. That's a generative space for thinking about music and why we make it and what and what all's possible in there that we don't normally do with it, you know? The second piece of music Darnell chose is essential to forming his sensibilities was Good Thing We're Rapping by Digital Underground. All right, parents, go ahead and tuck the kids in. PG time is over. This goes out to all the Macs in the industry. <laughs> all right, roll tech. It's a good thing that we're rapping. You ain't no it's a good thing that we're rapping. Cause if it wasn't for the rapping, we'd be macking. It's a good thing that we're rapping. Your rest day is in There was a time when they called me Smooth Eddie. So this is for the second golden era of hip hop, right? Um, which is which is my era, right? Um, it's the era when I become aware of all the amazing stuff going on, and I'm like 24 or 25, I guess. Um, and I mean, it's the history of hip hop is so rich and 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 well documented that, that to break it down is it takes a lot of time. But like, but the second golden era is, you know, is this time when lyricism is growing into a lot of storytelling and the sonics are developing rapidly. Um, some people are bringing in live instruments, you know. 
Um, there's just a lot going on, right? It's become a viable way to be an artist making a living out there touring. It's been that for a minute now at this point. Like, and, uh, and, and there's just a great deal going on. And yet it's still got that bubbling under, you know, white critics are still asking, is this, is this a musical form and stuff? You know, it's, uh, um, and, uh, 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 and it's really kind of, it's, it's a very, often for a lot of musical forms, the first days of it are the most exciting, you know, early punk, people get so excited about it. But the second golden era of hip-hop has like a lot of Afrocentric stuff, like X-Clan, you know. Um, uh, and there's just so much sampling hasn't yet. Uh, I, I feel like the Bismarcky lawsuit hasn't really, its effects aren't being that keenly felt. Paul's Boutique happens during this era, you know. And um, and so, but the digital underground, uh, uh Tupac Shakur had been a dancer for them. That's where he comes from, right? But there was, it was a uh, Shock G, the main guy, was a uh, a heavily, I want to say a disciple of George Clinton, but he does his own thing. I, the word disciple, if it carries any negative connotations, that's not what I mean. But I mean, he was a, a person like many people who had heard in George Clinton's work an entire universe to explore, right? And that's exactly what George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic is. It's like, it's, and all that stuff comes out of, James Brown, I think, and and uh, and and Fela also. I think they were listening to Fela Kuti, but but this whole sort of idea of getting as many of your friends as you feel like inviting along into the studio and onto the stage and making a big joyous sound happen. And what the digital brings to that is they they bring it into the rap era and say, well, what if we have a guy rapping on this? Because for the most part, Parliament lyrics are you know fairly brief. They're, they tell some stories, but they often hinge on a hook that gets repeated over and over again. Uh, you know, if you hear any noise, it's just me and the boys, that kind of thing. Um, but Shock G is a master storyteller, absolutely a master storyteller. And when this record comes out, I had already heard and loved the Humpty Dance, like the entire rest of the world. I had already bought Sex Packets, which was the first record, which was a super amazing concept album because it claimed that there were these drugs that would give you some sort of sexual hallucinatory experience to have safer sex by imagining it. And I'm a gullible person. Right. I mean, like on purpose also that if you tell me there is such a drug, even though I know this is a liner notes of an album, I'm like, what was there really a thing they're talking about? And I'll sort of I'll, sort of I'll buy into it. I, uh, Bill Doreen uh, from the Builders once told me, I believe every story I'm ever told until it's over. Right. And and that's a really good ethos for life. Um, and so so that's me like reading the sex packs like, wow, this is vision. And of course, a lot of this is copped from Parliament Funkerdelic album sleeves where they'll say, well, no, this is the album by Dr. Funkenstein, and there is no, you know, it's all the same people, but but they'd make up these alternate identities, all this beautiful, uh, you know, uh, 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 science fiction worlds to live in, you know, and uh, and that's what he was doing on Sex Packets, and he had a character named Humpty Hump, who he would who personify, who had his own separate personality, another one called the Piano Man, who was less fleshed out. But good thing we're rapping is a very long story that wasn't in any way telegraphed, right? Like, there's nothing that says, oh, well, here comes the big song, you know, or anything. It's at the end of the record, right? Um, and he starts telling a story about pimping, right? Generally not that interesting a subject to me, you know? It's like, I just, it was already pretty played at that point to be talking about it. And the Digital Underground was making a point of not talking that much about it. But I have known a fair number of pimps and prostitutes, uh, you know, when I was out using drugs and stuff. And, uh, and that, that was just a few years in the rear view when this was new, right? And, and the way he tells the story is incredibly vivid and very real uh, feeling. It feels like, oh, it sounds like he either has a fair bit of experience in this field or he's an absolute genius of a storyteller. He's accumulated 
a, a bunch of information. And and uh, and then when he gets to the chorus, he says, you know, to this very day, when I think of how I was living back then, I got to say, it's a good thing that we're rapping, right? And uh, and it's it's so relatable, right? It's so relatable to everybody, which is a big part of the Digital Underground's mission. Is like they're trying to make music that is understood and related to by absolutely anybody who it reaches, even if their life experience is nowhere near what he's talking about. It's no, not even adjacent to it. He's trying to make these stories spaces where we can see our similarities. He was a joyous uh, creator. Uh, uh, his death affected me profoundly as, you know, an immense loss to music. The solo stuff that he self-released in the mid-2000s, completely neglected by everybody, and they were great records. Um, uh, is an absolute genius. And so when this record came out, the Mountain Goats were very young. I was driving in from Norwalk, where my day job was, to college where I was going, listening to this and seeing how you could fold what I strongly suspect are details of his personal life into a fictional narrative and have the two coexist. I mean, that's... I don't need to explain, if you know my work, how, how strongly something like that informs me, that you can fold the two, that you don't have to. You don't have to say, well, either I'm being autobiographical or I'm telling a story, right? Either I'm making something up or I'm giving you the truth. I can do both, right? I can, I can in fact, do both always and everywhere. I can be doing both, right? When I'm telling a story that's 100% fiction, it's still got some of me in it. When I'm telling you a story that tries to tell you all about me, there's still going to be some element that I'm, that I'm turning into a story because our, our lives aren't actually narrative like that. All that is present in this song. It brilliantly told, very funny, very good story. Uh, uh, yeah, just amazing. You never forget the first time you hear it. My friend Daryl can rap the entire thing. <laughs> like from, from the top of his memory. Amazing. Beyond Video is a volunteer-run video library in Baltimore. Basically, an old-school video rental store reimagined with a 21st century nonprofit twist. Beyond offers nearly 30,000 titles from every region, era, and genre of cinema on DVD, Blu-ray, and VHS, a collection created by crowdsourcing disc donations from movie lovers like you. With no rental fees or late fees, members get unlimited rentals from their collection for a small monthly donation. Find out more about joining or donating at beyondvideo.org. Or when in Baltimore, visit Beyond at 2545 North Howard Street. And for a limited time, new members who mention Essential Tremors when signing up will get an extra month for free. Molten Plains Fest is back for its second year in Denton, Texas. Fostering the spirit of adventurous music and further sounds, the Molten Plains monthly series expands into a two-day-long event on the second weekend of December, Friday, December 8th, and Saturday, December 9th. The festival will feature 13 sets of more than 30 artists coming from 10 cities, including a first-time duo of Joe McPhee and Zoe Amba, the ecstatic trio of Wendy Eisenberg, Damon Smith, and Stefan Gonzalez, a solo set from Sean Meehan, as well as Water Damage, Christina Carter, and Andrew Weathers and David Minestri's Tamarisk Project. Tickets and more information at moltenplains.com. The final piece of music Darnell chose as being crucial to him was Me Talisman by Anna Gabriel. Sabes, 
pasa el tiempo y no te veo Cada vez estás más lejos Y yo gusto más de ti ¿Por qué? Sabes, yo pensé que era más fácil Olvidar tu forma frágil Yeah, no, that's one reason I picked it is because, you know, I mean, one, this is something my Facebook friends are probably very tired of me talking about, but like when, when people get asked to name their favorite stuff and they always name the same things, it's like, you can't be that, your favorites can't be that solid for you that you have to every, like, here, I'll, I'll go fully into my zone here. When guys of my generation get asked what record is amazing and they say Remain in Light, I want to jump off of a building. Remain in Light is a great record. Shut up about Remain in Light. Everybody knows, or oh, oh no, wait, it's Talking at 77 or Buildings, whatever, right? Talk about some records people haven't heard about that also blew your mind, you know? Whether it's in the case of this record, this was a massive success, but not among native English speakers. Most native English speakers have never heard of it. And it's an absolute masterpiece. Um, so yeah, so that's one of my things is like, you know, Fellas of my generation, they'll tell you about Gang of Four, they'll tell you about Talking Heads, they'll tell you about Wire. It's like, we all know about that. <laughs> you gotta talk about stuff that's amazing that people don't know about. So this is Ana Gabriel. Um, Ana Gabriel is a, uh, was a pop star in Mexico when this came out. And she had had uh, dance records in the style of mid to late 80s Mexican pop, right? Uh, she had, and those were great too. She had a huge hit called Quien Como Tu. Um, uh, who, who Like You is what that means. Literally, it's a... a incredible, incredibly sad song. Um, and, and she has this, she has a voice uh, like nobody else's voice. That's her thing. She has her instrument, uh, has a little grain in it that's natural, that's just native to her voice, right? And you can force grain. I can't stand that when people are like making their voice or forced vocal fry. Another thing guys in my generation won't shut up about including me is like, can't stand forced vocal fry at all. But, uh, but, but a little grain when it's just present in the voice, like Rosemary Clooney has a little of that, you know. Um, but on Gabrielle's is pronounced. It's, it's, it's a grainy sound, right? It's got a little extra grain in it that codes to your ear as emotion. Now, that, of course, is a little trick because, you know, no sound has an inherent quality to it, you know. But, but still, when we hear that, you know, when we hear, when we hear a little grain or a little, little strain, we, we assume somebody's feeling something especially deeply, and she deploys that, right? She, she uses that to great effect. And uh, so in Mi Mexico, uh, it's an album of, of uh, ranchera songs. It's like just it's acoustic guitars uh, and, and, uh, uh, and bajo sexto, the, the, the big, the giant bass and all that. So it's, it's, it's ranch music, right? It's traditional Mexican music, but they're new songs, right? They are among the best songs of this type you can hear anywhere. And they were all new. What's amazing about this is like the biggest Mexican performer in the world probably at this point uh, would have been Vicente Fernandez, right? Uh, and he's still a titan of Mexican music, right? But, um, but, but he had generations to develop an entire catalog of songs, right? And this, in one single record that comes out in, I think, 90, when I happened to be tuned into this kind of music because I speak Spanish and I was working on a Spanish-speaking unit and my girlfriend was from Mexico, so I was sort of very much in a Spanish-speaking milieu a lot of the time, and I was conscious of what was going on. Um, uh, my girlfriend did not like Ana Gabriel at the time, but I did. <laughs> and so... Uh, and this thing came out, and I heard uh, uh, the song Es Demasiado Tarde, which I forget if it's on this record or not, or if it was another song in this style that she put on something else. 
But I heard es demasiado tarde. My Spanish isn't what it used to be uh, on the radio one day. I just burst into tears. It's so beautiful. Um, and I got the record at, at like the warehouse on tape. Right, everything was on tape for me in those days. And uh, and my God, from Vitalisman to every song on the record, right? Uh, no entiendo. I think is next. Um, they're just all so good. It's one of these rare records where, and there are some records like Neil Young's Harvest is one of these where you go. Really? They're all on the same record? You didn't, like, put these in the quiver and decide to dole them out over the course of the next 10 years to keep your, you know, to keep the coffers full? It's like, no, you just put all those good songs all on one. And uh, and so I picked one here, but, like, the whole album is that. But but the ache of this song, of the strings, of the vocal, everything about it is just so total. It's so, it's so, um, it's so careful, you know, and it's trying it's like a lot of songs, it's trying to sell it to you as if it's just a thing that's going on, right? It's a thing, like a natural expression, but really it's a very magnificently tailored uh, uh, knife to your heart. Oh my God, and I'm looking at the track listing. Y aquí estoy is on here. Amigo mío, the one which is for, uh, is that for Vicente Fernandez? I think so. Uh, no, it's for Juan Gabriel, uh, who they're not related, but they have the same last stage name. Um, I mean, every, every tune on here is great. It's absolutely incredible. Mitalisman is the opening track, and it really sets the stage for, like, it's time to hurt for an entire record. It's time to, to really, and not, and not hurt in a, in, a, in a, you know, really the, you know, a, a very wistful, reflective, you know, afternoon gazing into the distance. But also it's very anthemic. You know, when I saw her play uh, a year or two later, uh, you know, everybody's singing along with every song, and... Uh, uh, and there's a joy to it, uh, but uh, but yeah, this Mitalisman is just absolutely beautiful. Maybe this is um, maybe this is getting off the topic a little bit. Maybe this is obnoxious, but I wonder, as a you know a songwriter and a singer, do you hear someone like that and um, and think about your own singing voice, or I mean, does that does something like that make you wish that you could access that kind of power which is not to you know underrate or belittle your own power as a as a writer you don't you don't have to be delicate talk. no 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 it's what i do what i do is different i'm actually a pretty good singer it's my instrument that its character is is a take it or leave it proposition for most listeners right it's like my voice the actual thing that i have in my throat has a tone that can be super off-putting to some people. And that's, I'm, I'm fine with that. My actual talents as a singer, most people don't differentiate between good singer and good voice, right? Most people say it's good voice, good singer, right? Um, but singing is a question of phrasing and volume control and breath control. All that stuff I'm actually super good at, I, I gotta be honest. Um, I wasn't always, but I've, I've actually, over 30 years doing this, I've, I've developed a lot of skills. The voice has grown some, but it remains a, a, a make or break for plenty of people. And I'm fine with that. It's like, that's, you know, many of my favorite, one of Gabrielle's voice is a make or break for some people. Some people, the grain, they think it sounds like she's straining, you know, um, a lot of people just don't like it. Um, but uh, but for me, it's great. I do, would, do I wish I had an instrument like that? Of course I do. The same as like, you know, if I see somebody who has a, you know, a pre-war Martin, I wish I could play it, you know, <laughs> but uh but you can't, you can't, you take the instrument that you have in your throat and you develop it to, to the best of its capabilities if you're a singer, right? And, uh, and, you know, the use I make of it, I'm extremely happy with. Has she got a better voice than me? Seven days out of seven, baby. That's a beautiful instrument. She's just got the, it's, it's fantastic. But, but yeah, if I had a voice like that, my whole situation would be different. It's like you learn to write songs like I do often because, you know, 
Because if I sing some other lyrics, then we go, well, cool, these lyrics aren't good and neither is the singer. I got to go, right? <laughs> so if I write good lyrics, then I can get people to hang around. And, you know, people develop an attachment or an affection for my voice. That's what happens when you listen to somebody who writes good lyrics, but whose voice is kind of uh, a deal breaker sometimes. Um, um, well, so uh, here's a question for you. Uh, how do you, how do we, you and I here today, solve this conundrum of the the uh, locked into the uh, the tastes of the past, um, which has afflicted so many of our brethren and sistren, sistren, sisters. So, so interesting. You li- you just keep this one Jackson Brown lyric in your mind. Um, which um, let me let me. I, I, I don't want to miss a misquote it. Um, uh, but I mean, it's something that that if if you have fallen away. Um, Oh, what's the lyric? Um, one second. I want to make sure I get this exactly right. Uh, it's from For a Dancer. Uh, you know this tune? Uh, yes, but it's been a really long time since I've heard it, I have to say. Where is it? Uh, wait, where is it? Am I not? <laughs> no, I, mean, I think I'm thinking of the wrong one. Uh, uh, the question, the question is how we avoid becoming calcified in our tastes, right? Uh, that happens to so many of our generation. And the thing is, I want to be merciful when I describe this because for several reasons. One, people should just enjoy what they enjoy, right? I, I don't want to give people a hard time about, about liking the music that they like. You know, it's like you should, you should enjoy what you enjoy. But, but if something you notice is that, like, well, I'm not connecting to music like I used to, that's because you were more connected to a lot of things when you were younger. Your life narrows as you age in a lot of ways. But you can fight that. Um, by by making conscious choices, right? Um, the way that that it, I mean, I'm I work in music, so it's easier for me. Uh, but but you pick something that you're that you have a mild interest in, and you explore more of it, right? Bandcamp is incredible for this. Uh, but uh, but I mean, you can be at random. You can say, you know, if you like the sound on a particular sound of a mandolin or something, you say, well, I don't actually know anything about folk music. I'll go listen to some some folk music and the thing is in the age of streaming there's no excuse right to not say oh like for me the thing i do is i do music of other countries i, I found a, a singer named uh zainab bostic uh, uh i ran across a tune by her and it was so good it was called her Zen, and it was an incredible song i think it was actually a theme from a tv show in turkey so i got into her stuff right and this was by looking at a streaming playlist somewhere on apple music right and uh, and from there, I started looking for Turkish streaming radio stations, right? And you don't have to give your whole day to them. You just do it while you're washing the dishes or whatever, you know? It's like but you put on, you just keep putting on something different, right? The further out of your field, your normal field of inquiry, the better. Like, if the thing is you're worried about is, like, rock and roll doesn't sound as good to you now as it did in the 70s, I get it, man. They're making a lot of different production choices now that I don't care for either, right? The fact that, that everything is polished until it shines before it leaves the studio, that's a reason why guys like you and me got so into the White Stripes. It's like, oh, I like it better when I can see some of the dings on it, you know? I can like it better when I can hear the people behind it. Not everybody feels that way. But, but the thing is, you probably like more than just rock and roll or whatever. You probably enjoy a lot of stuff, right? And you just go find these streaming stations or playlists or whatever that have stuff you haven't heard before, and let them roll a little bit, right? And and take a note if you hear something good. And the thing is, like, this is so basic. You just click the fave button on it. Then the algorithm will, will suggest more stuff like that to you. 
Um, that's one way. It's not the only way. It's like the other thing you can do is, is just read the Bandcamp Daily. The Bandcamp Daily will 100% serve you good stuff. Streaming radio, though, I think is one of the most underutilized resources on the web. You know, I mean, everything has folded into social media now, and everybody talks about people's opinions and stuff. But people's opinions are reliably dull, right? They're the same. They fall on this or that side of the issue, and they think their opinions are nuanced, but they're not. Mine neither, right? So there's they're what they are. They're people taking positions and taking sides, you know. But music is not like that. Uh, and and if you find international streaming radio stations, of which there are God knows how many untold thousands, you can access them just through a tab in your Sonos. You go to Sonos, uh, where is it? Um, there's a thing called TuneIn Radio that comes natively with Sonos. And you just click on it, and suddenly you're around the world. Now, I will admit that like half the time, if you're going to a European station, it's going to be like big venue house music, right? Like really giant drop techno, and it might or might not appeal to you, right? And the DJs also, if it's European DJs, they're really loud. It's, it's like, another giant hit, right? And they do this thing, right? And it's very, it's it's very, it's, it's not for me. But, uh, but, but the thing is, I mean, it really is just keeping a line out to the world outside. You know, it's like it's being. You have to. I, this is where intellectuals or purported intellectuals like me, like if you have assumed, if your assumption going in is that if you think there's less stuff out there, that the fault lies in your eye and not in the stuff that's out there, you have to have this as a philosophical assumption, right? If you think that you are actually omniscient enough to have seen everything there is and it's just worse now than it was when you were younger, well, God bless you. I don't think that's correct. I think probably your vision shortened because your life got busier and you got older, but there's a lot out there to see. You just have to sort of stay open. You know? But having said that, I will, I will jump in with one other thing. There are studies. There are studies that say it's healthy for your brain to listen to the stuff you liked when you were younger. And this is the part of it that's, that's naturally indwelling that I have to force myself to do. I have a playlist called, that I call Synapse Martini for this exact, exact purpose because otherwise I won't listen to the stuff I liked when I was younger. When people ask me for my list of three songs, I go, well, my three favorite songs are all, are all current, you know, but I do, no, no, let me dig back and listen to this. And it is good for your brain to do this. Your brain wants to be, and, it, and, it, and, it, and then it feeds you good vibes by saying, well, thanks, because I'm trying to keep my memory working. I'm trying to keep this machine functioning until you're 90-ish, you know. And so, so yeah, so there's part of that that makes sense. It, 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 it is natural that if you're my age, 56, and you hear more than a feeling, you get a certain kind of vibe. You go, oh, man, I was nine when this came out, and that feels good. But you have to not privilege that as the only vibe that music is capable of. you got to also say, you know, it's really valuable to hear something go, hey, I haven't heard this before. I'm listening to Elliot Carter. This is going way out into the spaceways, you know. And, uh, you know, you have, to, you, have to, you, have to, you have to remember that there are as many ways to listen to music as you can conceive of, plus one. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to essentialpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.